my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what the telly doesn't tell you. This week, comedian, author and Jew David Baddiel on anti-Semitism, the racism that is often hidden or underplayed, but is no less real for that. I mean, I think people should realise this. I don't know if people do realise this, that for a lot of white supremacists, Jews are sort of the principal enemy even though it might sound in the for white supremacists, well, obviously brown or black people, are, and obviously they are terrible to black and black people, don't let me downplay what they're like to them. But they think, most white supremacists, that the masterminds of multiculturalism, the ones who are really trying to destabilise the white races, are Jews. An in-depth conversation with David Baddiel about his book, Jews Don't Count, coming shortly. First, Dominic Cummings' astonishing political journey from Downing Street insider to potential prime ministerial assassin. Cummings is, of course, Boris Johnson's former chief advisor, and the ferocious row between them could yet lead to the downfall of the PM. How has it come to this? Byline Times co-founder Peter Dukes says the story involves a number of closely connected figures in the world of politics and the media, some of whom, including Cummings, fear arrest, not to mention not one, but two hacking scandals. I mean, the famous one is where I think it starts, which is in 2011, Chief Executive of News International and then friend of the Prime Minister, David Cameron, Rebecca Brooks, was arrested in the phone hacking scandal just after David Cameron's chief spokesman, Andy Coulson, had been arrested. And you'll remember what happened 10 years ago. The Leveson Inquiry, which looked at the proximity between not just Murdoch, but other media proprietors and senior politicians. And then the phone hacking trial itself, one of the biggest trials in British history, where Rebecca Brooks, we must say, was found innocent of knowing about phone hacking or bribing cops, but several other journalists, senior journalists, including Andy Coulson, were found guilty. Now, that first part of Leveson, which we heard about when we had all these famous moments with stars and newspaper proprietors and politicians being quizzed by Robert JQC under the chairmanship of Lord Justice Brian Leveson. That was always supposed to be just the first part of an inquiry. And then because all these trials were going on, as you know, Adrian, you can't contempt existing trials. If you have a public inquiry, it could prejudice the jury. It was supposed to happen about a year or so later when all those trials were over, and there were a lot of them. It never happened. And in fact, it was originally postponed, and then under Theresa May, it was entirely cancelled, though everybody said it was necessary. Now, what does that have to do with the criminal fear of culpability of the media? Well, quite importantly, there are still ongoing phone hacking revelations about the sun and the mirror. And Lord Justice Leveson said this himself a year or so ago. A lot of the editors then lied to me. Lying to a public inquiry under the law is perjury and a potentially a criminal offence. And had Leveson 2 gone ahead then, Leveson might well have been inclined to pursue some of those witnesses from Leveson Part 1 who he felt had been dishonest with him. And in exploring this relationship between media organisations and the police, he may well have discovered some pretty unsavoury connections between senior media executives and police officers. Indeed. And that proximity between Fleet Street 
and certain journalists and certain senior coppers was rife. I mean, where there were a lot of convictions, not of journalists, but of sources for receiving money from Fleet Street for stories, including police stories. All that would have come out. So the three areas, really, denied but now proven phone hacking, all stuff around other corrupt police networks, and thirdly, senior editors deceiving Lord Justice Leveson and deceiving the public. Yeah, we can be confident, can't we, that Leveson was not given the whole story. Some newspapers which denied phone hacking have since paid out millions of pounds to people who complained about phone hacking, or there have been criminal trials in which details of phone hacking emerged. So if there had been a Leveson part two, he could have called to account those media executives who he felt had lied to him in Leveson part one. Exactly. And yeah, those cases you point to are still ongoing in the High Court 10 years later. And for the last 10 years, all these media proprietors have been terrified of Leveson too. They've done everything they can do to stop it, lobbied against it, demonized, hacked off. And I think that explains why they got so close and backed so clearly their two journalist leaders, the young politicians, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, two journalists, one, you know, famous columnist Boris Johnson for The Telegraph, edited The Spectator, Michael Gove, very close to Rupert Murdoch, gets book commissions from HarperCollins, goes with Murdoch to interview Donald Trump. Now, they have got their men in power, their pals in power. And I think part of the support for Brexit, part of it was obviously ideological from those sort of right-wing newspapers, but part of it was if we get our guys in place, we can stop Leveson too. We can be let off the hook. And even better, in recent years, they've had all kinds of boondoggles handed out. You know, they're no longer VAT registered. They haven't had to have a compulsory regulator or independent regulator. And they've had all these millions in handouts from the government during coronavirus for government advertising campaigns. And so the press barons think they've got their placemen in positions of power? Well, certainly, you know, they behave that way until recently, as we will get to, no doubt. So, yes, and, and lots of, though Murdoch did drop his bid for Sky, it's not a completely clean capture, but there's certainly less resistance in government. A lot of anger from newspaper proprietors against Cameron because he'd called the Leveson inquiry mainly because he was in a coalition. And a lot of support for Johnson and Gove from Brexit onwards. Which I think, if I can mention now, is the second hacking scandal, which involves Dominic Cummings, and I am a victim of it. I would say that, you know, most of us watched the Levis inquiry or the phone hacking trial unfold in 2013 as a warning from history about what can happen, a Stasi-like intrusion into private lives by powerful media magnets. But what I realize now is some people looked at it as an instruction manual. And one of these groups who probably did was Cambridge Analytica, which exactly that time when the phone hacking trial was taking place on a sat in the Old Bailey for eight months, they started up. This is Steve Bannon, who became Trump's campaign manager, who was then supremo of the right-wing news site Breitbart. He and a billionaire hedge fund owner, Robert Mercer, set up this organization in Cambridge called Cambridge Analytica, which went on to hack about 75 million Facebook users and used that information, which was both demographics and psychographics, their personal disposition, direct messages, everything, 
to target people in the Trump campaign in 2016. And this is an area of contention, but one thing is for sure, they worked for the EBU, scoping out UKIP members, profiling them, and their offshoot, AIQ, was the main recipient of the official Leave campaign, Vote Leave, directed by Dominic Cummings, of all their targeted ads. And basically, that was, I mean, Dominic Cummings says, basically spent all our money in the last few days on digital ads on Facebook. You know, that's what Cambridge Analytica was great at, profiling people on, on Facebook. And they were very good at just turning that last 5% of voters, playing on their fears, psychographically profiling them according to this ocean score. And it was very effective. That's why everybody wanted to work with them. But that's right, just a bit like the phone hacking scandal. This was based on illicitly gained material and was politically effective, as phone hacking was, because we all think about Millie Dowell or Sienna Miller or movie stars. But actually, 27 members, I counted at one point, of Blair's administration, SPAD's administers, were hacked by News of the World. 27. So this is highly sensitive data for political ends. Now, Dominic Cummings said in the Sunday Times, or reported to have feared in the Sunday Times, his friends have said, one of the reasons he's so avid about speaking the truth now and doesn't care is in the last, for the last, actually, three years, he's feared a criminal inquiry. We don't know if he's been interviewed, but we do know, thanks to Carol Cadwallader and the work she did, the Electoral Commission found that Vote Leave had illegally overspent and then had referred to the National Criminal Agent, the NCA, our FBI, evidence they tried to cover this up. So there you have a, if you like, newspaper cartel, the media, Fleet Street World, needing government and afraid of criminal investigation. And then it reverses. You have a government and senior members of it, because Gove, Johnson and Cummings all worked on that same campaign, fearing criminal investigation and exposure. And the media helped them keep that away. You wouldn't read most of these stories about Cambridge Analytica or Vote Leave in those papers. You'd find them in the Observer, in the New York Times, on Channel 4, but not in those papers. So it's almost like those classic spaghetti westerns, Mexican standoff. They've all got their guns to each other's heads. It's mutual blackmail. Merely, if you see the way the British media works, if you've ever heard, as I did in court, about the big safe the sun used to have, filled with embarrassing material on politicians, you'll understand that Rupert Murdoch conned onto the notion of compromat, the, the Russian word we now use quite commonly for compromising material, long before Putin did. And I think that is a very unstable regime. And because it's a Mexican standoff, all it takes is one person to pull the trigger or one person to duck. And that whole unstable system of mutual blackmail and bribery collapses. So the unlikely figure of Dominic Cummings could bring the whole pack of cards tumbling down. One thing about Cummings is he is smart. I think a lot of his ideas are wrong. I think he overemphasizes genomics and genetics. But it's clear he does care about science and he cares about some evidence of truth. And looking back to what happened during the coronavirus, now I was very suspicious, and the Sunday Times seemed to confirm it, that because he, Cummings, and Johnson was so lazy, it was Cummings sitting in February on those early 
Sage and Cobra meetings. And I was pretty sure that it was Cummings who came up with the sort of notion of herd immunity. He'd actually written about it a bit in his blog, and the Sunday Times seemed to confirm that. But they also said, and I believe this too, once he realised this novel coronavirus was nothing like the flu, influenza, and that its death rates were much higher, he had what they call a domicene conversion, a damascene conversion, to the importance of stringent lockdowns and prevention. And there's every evidence he did that. Now, we have that whole episode of him going to County Durham, apparently breaking lockdown with trips to Barnard Castle to test his eyes. I think what he said in the Rose Garden, that famous Rose Garden press conference, which was kind of more senior than Boris Johnson would hold back in when it was May, June last year, I think a lot of what he said was that is implausible, his explanation for it. But I think the emotional explanation was plausible. He ran out of Diamond Street. He has a young, vulnerable family. He'd been ill himself. His wife was ill. I think a lot of that was panic about his personal and family liabilities. And ever since then, all the evidence is when we've had all these COVID minimizers and deniers over the summer saying lockdown is ridiculous, it's just, it's just like the flu, that he has pushed against that. And then there comes a crucial moment, which we might hear evidence on in the parliament in three weeks, the let the bodies pile high moment. Now, just to remind uh, your listeners, that was around late September. The virus was rising, the summer was over, schools were back, and was rising quite quickly. And there was a call from SAGE for a quick circuit breaker lockdown, which Labour supported. Johnson resisted after a meeting, thanks to Rishi Sunak, with figures, COVID sceptical figures, like Anders Tegnell from Sweden, Gupta and Hennigan, who are great Barrington signatories, and he backed off, and he kept on backing off. And then you have this explosive moment when he's supposed to have said, let the bodies pile high, when he's forced into this, actually a third lockdown. And that's when Cummings and Kane, the other press advisor, leave. I do think that, that Cummings felt that moment. We can look at the graphs. Many more died in that second wave, and I published that graph than in the first wave, and it was completely out of kilter with the rest of Europe. Our second wave was so much more devastating than the European average. I think that weighs on Cummings' mind. I think personally, I may be naive on this, or just I work with whistleblowers, I understand their compromise. In a way, this is more important than anything he did with Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica, you know, maybe they swung a a few thousand votes, 1%. That's all you needed, 2%. One person in 50 would have changed the Brexit vote. But nobody directly died. You know, 150,000 people have died in this country. And the first duty of any government is to protect its citizens from death. And if Johnson really said those things, if he followed the financial imperatives, if he didn't listen to the science, if he went the way, the cheap and easy way of anti-lockdown, just out of money, then I would applaud Dominic Cummings for coming forward and the whole country should. Do you know what? Nobody's all good or all bad. And as you know, Adrian, you know, I've worked with a lot of whistleblowers. You know, our TV team used to work on right-wing sites. They got radicalized by YouTube. I worked with Chris Wiley and Shamir Sunny, the vote leave whistleblower. And going back to the journalists on Barline Investigates, Graham Johnson and Dan Evans, they're the only two journalists who willingly came forward to say they were phone hackers. I don't know, life's messy and complicated, isn't it? I mean, there is a kind of 
an element of some Russian court going on in Downing Street with the you know, decorating apartments and falling out between Cummings and Boris Johnson's fiance Carrie Simmons. I do think greed, lies, cover-up are unsustainable. As we've seen with phone hacking, 10 years later, the truth is still coming out. It's easy to lie quickly, but to get all the receipts to go back in history and change your blog, change time, is very difficult without an audit trail. And if it isn't Cummings who takes down Johnson, something surely will, because you build on lies, you're building on the sand, and nothing will survive on that for long. The thoughts of Peter Jukes, and you can read much more from Peter, Byline Times co-founder, at our brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. This is probably as good a time as any to remind you that we don't owe allegiance to any media mogul, to any corporate interest or any political party. This podcast, Byline TV, and that website I mentioned, are supported by subscribers to our monthly paper, The Byline Times, which costs just £36 a year. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Now, as someone of Jewish heritage, I was naturally drawn to David Badil's latest book with its provocative title, Jews Don't Count. Badil, who describes himself as an atheist Jew, believes that in the modern world of identity politics, anti-Semitism has somehow been downgraded. You'll hear why shortly. But along the way we discovered we had something in common. My father escaped Nazi Germany at the age of just 13. He arrived in the UK on kinder transport with his little brother three months before the outbreak of war. Badil, it turned out, had a similar story. Be warned though, this interview is swearing. My mother was born in Nazi Germany. She just got out. She was obviously a baby. She was born in 1939. It's quite complicated and not entirely clear because various attempts were happening to smuggle her out. It was very difficult to get her out because my grandfather had been arrested after Kristallnacht and sent to Dachau, which was established as a concentration camp well before the final solution in 1938. So he'd been in Dachau for six months, and then my grandmother had managed to get him out on the basis that they were leaving and emigrating to come to Britain, but that was really hard to do. The papers were hard to get. It was hard to get into Britain. I mean, this is a long and complex history, which you all know about. And it was literally three weeks to go before the war broke out that my grandparents and my mum managed to get here, but it meant that most of their family were left behind and murdered. So... The fact of that is in every page, I would say, of Jews don't count, even when it's not. It becomes sort of impossible, particularly as you grow older, I think, not to feel the effect of that in your sort of bones, really. And particularly as you sort of understand time, how short time is, how when I was young, it was 19 years after the war when I was born, it felt like a lifetime. Now it really feels like nothing. Unsaid things, things that I know were unsaid when I was young that now seem to me in their silence to be much louder. And the forgetting of all this. I mean, well, I had a big deal on Twitter the other, other day because, I don't know if you saw that, but um, a woman and a few other people were wearing yellow stars at an uh, anti-lockdown demonstration. And I just wrote, take that off. Um, and it, led, it went kind of viral and all that. But I think the extremity of my immediate sort of visceral reaction to that 
maybe I wouldn't have felt like 20 years ago. I mean, you didn't have this quite as much of this idiocy 20 years ago either to deal with, and it wasn't so visible. But I mean, my reaction to that is all to do with a very, very strong sense of her, my grandparents having to wear those things, having to leave their family behind, having most of their family murdered, their entire livelihood taken away, my grandfather being in a mental hospital for in and out of his life because he was severely traumatised by it. And the ways in which I can now see that my mother's damage, which I didn't think I could see at the time, was deeply affected by all that. So all that is in saying, take that off to the woman wearing the fucking shit, no COVID <laughs> yellow star. Yeah, so in your own family history then, you've seen anti-Semitism in its most horrific form as an expression of hard-right Nazi ideology. But that's not what the book is about, is it? In the book, you're addressing anti-Jewish racism by progressive people or the failure to spot racism against Jews by people who would consider themselves to be progressives. Yeah, so by progressives, I don't mean just the Labour Party or the left, because I think progressive ideas and, you know, people who are in their minds anti-racist, not just racism, anti-ableist, anti-homophobia, you know, all those things that we, you might consider to be right-thinking people. I, think, I do think that extends beyond the left. I mean, there's a footnote in the story about David Cameron using the word yid, which is a whole other issue, uh, in front of me, and on a number of occasions, you know, when we're on the same TV show together in the green room, and my point being this is not, you know, he would not use a negative epithet for an ethnic minority in front of a member of the ethnic minority with any other one. And he's David Cameron, he's leader of the Conservative Party, but I still include him in someone who would be influenced by progressive ideas. So it's a wide spectrum of thought I'm talking about there. And I also want to be clear for anyone, you know, although the last five years of the Corbyn Labour Party probably catalyzed this book it's and, and he's in this book it's certainly about a much larger frame of reference and history as well and also the continuing beating drum of far-right anti-semitism is also very much in the book in a way the book is saying to progressives look i feel that you in your overarching concern for minorities have set up this sense of like we need to protect minorities from the various types of attack and aggression that they suffer from good meanwhile there is this fucking very strong in increase in neo-nazism and far-right anti-semitism and hate crime against jews and yet it seems to me that your sense of protection does not extend to jews or certainly not in the same way so that's really what it's about it's more of a, a dynamic between those two things and for people who haven't read the book then, I think it just might be worth talking through one or two examples of the kind of anti-Semitism that you mean that appears to be invisible to people who would regard themselves as progressive. Yeah, well, quite a lot of it is about the lack of reaction. So I start the book with about 12 or 13 examples, some of which are personal, some of which are political. A lot of the time what I'm talking about is not so much the thing in itself it's more about the fact that we live in a time of very hyper-awareness about aggressions and racism and whatever, and then these things didn't provoke that reaction. So that can be from the fact that Radio 4, which I would include in uh, a place that is thought certainly thinks very deeply about progressive things, not that they're very left-wing, but they would be very concerned to avoid offence, I think, of ethnic minorities, still had in 2017 a complete reading of T.S. Eliot's poetry, which includes the line, the rats are underneath the pile, the Jew is underneath the lot. And they 
did have something of a trigger warning for that. But I think that equivalent negative stereotyping of any other minority just would not be read out. So it goes from that to a very a much more extreme thing, which is at football, at Chelsea, me and my brother being literally having a bloke shout, fuck the Jews, fuck the fucking Jews, fuck the Yids, over and over again at us, a fight nearly breaking out. And my point about that, again, is not so much that it happened, although that is worth noting, but that by then we're living in a zero tolerance for racism at football environment. I've grown up seeing football go from a incredibly racist environment to, you know, really good attempts uh, and successful attempts to stamp out racism, including notices in the programme at Stamford Bridge that any form of racist abuse will lead to immediate expulsion and a lifetime ban. And this bloke is shouting, fuck the Jews, fuck the fuck, over and over again for about 10 minutes. And I say my brother starts to take him on or whatever. And no steward intervenes. There's no attempt to, you know, inquire who this might be afterwards and trace him and stop him from coming in. Nothing like that. And eventually me and my brother have to do a film called The Y Word to try and draw attention to that. And that itself is to some extent not blocked, but, you know, there's quite a lot of sort of do we really have to do this from the various anti-racist authorities in football because they don't consider it as important, which is essentially what the book's about. Yeah, this idea of a hierarchy of racism, that racism against Jews is somehow less important than racism against other minorities. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what the book is about. And I think one reason why the book seems to have made quite a lot of noise is that I think that thing is something the Jews feel very deeply, but it feels like they're not allowed to say it. It feels like that's something they're not allowed to say. And that when I've talked about it a little bit beforehand on social media, you often get a big pushback of like, it's not a competition. And, you know, and to some extent, you might be accused of doing down the struggle of other minorities by saying that and whatever. So I just made the decision, a sort of intellectual decision, I'm writing a polemic here to say, well, no, I'm going to talk about it because I know that I feel it and I know that a lot of Jews feel it. And here are some concrete examples and some sort of data that shows that it really exists as a thing. And no one's really come back to me and proved that it doesn't. Uh, it just feels like it's kind of thought of, like, no, you don't talk about this, it's an unsaid thing, it's divisive to mention it or whatever. But intersectionality, which I guess is what that's about at some level, intersectionality stands or falls on being actually intersectional, right? And within intersectionality, over the years, from when the left first started you know, to have proper campaigning and proper activism has been a long and sometimes painful process of saying, oh, no, we, we must include these people. We mustn't forget about the hate they suffer or the rate of blah, blah, blah. And that's allowed for, for a lot of other minorities, sort of totally allowed, you know, that for other minorities to say, well, we're, it's different for us. We feel we've been missed out from this, blah, blah, blah. But I think when Jews do it, there are issues. I would say the book shows how that exists. And then the majority of the book is really saying, why does this happen? A couple of areas where you identify conflict between some progressives and seeing anti-Semitism as equivalent to other forms of racism is in the wealth or perceived wealth of Jewish people. And also the sense of Jews as being white. You use this phrase, the flickering whiteness of Jews. Well, I use a phrase that isn't mine, but I do say that. I, don't, I can't credit it, sadly. Flickering whiteness is mine, but someone on the internet used the phrase Schrodinger's whites to describe Jews, and I love that because what it really means is that Jews are white or non-white depending on the politics of the observer. 
So it works very well uh, in terms of how Schrodinger's cat works. But what I mean by that is that for very right-wing people, obviously the actual Nazis, but neo-Nazis in America, white supremacists, I mean, I think people should realise this. I don't know if people do realise this, that for a lot of white supremacists, Jews are sort of the principal enemy even though it might sound in the for a white supremacists, well, obviously brown or black people, are, and obviously they are terrible to black and black people, don't let me downplay what they're like to them. But they think, most white supremacists, that the masterminds of multiculturalism, the ones who are really trying to destabilise the white races, are Jews. You had a great example of that, I think, in 2017 in the United States, in Charlottesville, with the Unite the Right march and that chant, the Jews shall not replace us. That Jews will not replace us thing, which I didn't understand at first. Uh, I didn't. I thought, what is that about? And then I realised it's about this great replacement theory, which is that, which a lot of, I mean, you know, Tucker Carlson on Fox News recently was basically, without saying the words Jews will not replace us, was saying that he believes that, you know, Democrats have got immigration procedures that are about replacing people who would vote for Republicans. And if you break that down not very far, you get Jews will not replace us. And that's their idea. So Jews, according to this theory, then, are masterminding the Great Replacement, the idea that people in majority white countries will come to be outnumbered by black and brown people. It's Jews who are orchestrating that. Jews are orchestrating it, but as part of that, people need to understand that Jews themselves are not seen as white people. They're sort of neither not seen as brown or black people either. They're sort of seen as this elusive alien colour that is not part of the white races. And certainly in, you know, white supremacists, Jews will be ejected from any, you know, pure white country. So, so that's the right. Jews are not white. And at the same time, I see a lot of when progressives want to condemn someone who happens to be Jewish, they will always add the word white to it. So, for example, when Mir One did that mural that Corbyn supported, and then when Jews asked for it to be taken down, um, that mural from whenever it was of bearded, hook-nosed men playing Monopoly on the backs of the world poor, Mir One made a point of saying on his Facebook page in protest at being taken down, it seemed to upset some old white Jewish folk. And that white hasn't been put in there randomly. That white has been put in there to associate Jews with whiteness and therefore power and privilege and all the things that Jews are associated with, sometimes by the left, in order to exclude them from the kind of, you know, protection that was offered to other minorities. So that's what I mean by Schrodinger's whites. Yeah, and you also use statistics to challenge this idea that Jews are in some way uniquely privileged in society in terms of their wealth. Well, it's a myth. I mean, I found myself having to go to some facts and figures because of what I was trying to say, but I'm not that kind of writer. I write generally from my own experience and I really come from stand-up. And so although this is a book which has hopefully got some jokes in it, it's mainly a serious book, but I don't want to have to do loads and loads of dry statistics, but I went to some statistics for that, which apparently the ethnic minority millionaires are all, it's all mixed up, and Hindus are at the top of that particular league of an individual Hindu. I very much doubt anyone would say, well, he or she doesn't suffer racism because they're wealthy, or because they're not associated with sort of wealth quite in the same way. Wealth for Jews in that association seems to also imply power and privilege and, you know, the ability to control things, which I think is what puts them outside the square in the minds of a lot of people, including some people on the left, not really suffering from racism. But then I make another point, 
it's very dangerous to say, therefore, they don't suffer racism because, you know, my grandparents, the ones we we're just talking about, they actually were wealthy in Germany in the 20s. They owned a brick factory and they were, you know, they weren't super wealthy, but, you know, they were wealthy and then they lost everything and all their family was murdered in the space of a few years. So, again, this notion that money is associated with Jews and that protects them in some racism, it's, it's wrong and it's ahistorical and simplistic. I was always told that the association of Jews with finance came about because Christians regarded usury, lending money for interest, as a mortal sin, but that as Jews were damned anyway because they had killed Christ, they were allowed to lend money with interest. So they were pushed to the edge of society. There weren't many other roles that they were allowed to do, but they could do that. So on the one hand, they were condemned for being moneylenders. On the other hand, they were mostly tolerated because they provided a service that was useful to the Christian majority. That is obviously completely correct. But I think it's also really important. There's a bit in the book where I talk about the word Jew and how it's weird that we as Jews have this word which is the real word for us but which is an insult and I use an example from one of my novels where a woman is translating a, a Nazi and the Nazi uses the word Judinen and she tries to translate it as Jewesses and realises that isn't right and then she tries it as Jewish women and realises it isn't white right and then she writes Jew women and that's right that gets in what the Nazi contempt was originally in the German and only one word, as far as I know, has this ability. You know, like If you go from Jewish women to Jew women, you've completely changed the character of those two words. It's really extraordinary. And the deep burial of what I would call a type of systemic racism in Judeo-Christian culture is very important in all this. So that when you look at that mural, which is bioprogressive... I think it's also drawing on very ancient Christian traditions of the greedy devil, gargoyle, blah, blah, blah figure, because they're the villains in Mere One's image. But what are those greedy gargoyle devils? Go back a few centuries and they're always Jews. You reference Jeremy Corbyn, and I feel that his spectre hangs over the entire book. When that mere one story came to light, I've got a friend who, like you, is an atheist Jew, a lifelong Labour supporter, but who said that he could never vote for the party again so long as Corbyn was in charge. Do you think Corbyn was just tone deaf to anti-Jewish racism or was he responsible for dog whistle anti-Semitism? Well, in the book, I talk about the, the idea of the blind spot. So part of what the book is about, to some extent, is the fact that, in my opinion, far-right anti-Semitism, which has a long history, is at the same time fairly simple, insofar as it's people who completely own that they hate Jews and would like to eradicate them. That is, and that doesn't need much deconstruction. Whereas progressive anti-Semitism is much more difficult to see. And a good example of it is Corbyn's reaction to that mural. Because I think I personally do believe that he isn't someone who, at the front of his mind, would ever say, I hate Jews, in the way that a Nazi or a neo-Nazi would say that and be proud of it. I don't believe that about Jeremy Corbyn. I never believed that about Jeremy Corbyn. But the book is about, as I say, how the left or progressives 
basically consider anti-Semitism, and certainly modern anti-Semitism, right? I think quite a lot of them will still bang a drum about the the actual dances in the 1930s or whatever, but there's a sort of sense in which, like, yeah, we've moved on from that and they're all right now and blah, 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 and that will never happen again, of course, all that stuff. So it is lower down on the rung of important things. And actually for Corbyn, I think there's something specific, which is there are quite a lot of younger people who are progressive I think it's all about ethnicity or gender identity or whatever, the way they think about here are the important minorities. For Corbyn, it's also about class. And I think because he's an old-style lefty. And so for him, that picture, all he can see is a rebel yell against the people who own the means of production. All he can see is these are capitalists, bankers, blah, blah, blah. And they're on the backs of the world poor. We have to fight against them. And that blocks completely the kind of obvious fact that they look like cartoons of Jews and a long tradition of cartoons of Jews. And two of them are fucking Jews because mere one says, oh, those old white Jewish folk were upset about seeing hashtag Warburg, hashtag Rothschild on these things. And the minute you've got particularly Rothschild in a Facebook post, you click on it and it's just the worst anti-Semitism ever. So it's sort of amazing in a way that mere one I mean, in a way, I sort of think he's much more straightforwardly, you know, dodgy in that respect. Because I think, like, right, you've put hashtag Rothschild on your Facebook page. You know, if you click that, where that's going to go. But Jeremy Corbyn, I think it is more of like, he's so obsessed with these things. And they're so important that anti-Semitism, in a way, is just a distraction from those things. I think that was always kind of the problem. There's another issue as well, which may or may not apply to Jeremy Corbyn, but certainly applies to many progressives, and that's either dislike for the practices of the state of Israel or indeed for the creation of the state of Israel in the first place. And that, in some cases, that comes to manifest itself as anti-Jewish racism. Yeah, well, I would say it does. The book makes a kind of, you know, gesture which I think is important, which is, here's a bit about Israel. It's not going to be very long. I'm not going to get drawn in to a long thing about Israel, partly because I personally don't have a strong opinion about Israel. And I think the notion that Jews have to is itself racist because, you know, British Muslims are not required to have a strong opinion about Iran or Saudi Arabia or whatever, you know, unless they actually have a heritage in those countries. But if they don't, you know, no one says to them, I'm not allowing you to make a comment about Islamophobia before you make a statement about human rights in Saudi Arabia. That simply doesn't happen. And so I'm trying to say, I want to talk about anti-Semitism, and I'm not going to allow the normal thing that happens, which is, no, first we have to have a long, fucking, annoying conversation about Israel and how you feel about Israel before we can have that. I'm just not going to do that. And that's been interesting because it sort of foxes both... I mean, foxes is like the wrong word, but it sort of does, outflanks both the people on the left who would do that and to some extent Jews as well. And the book is, in its own way, it's a critique of progressives. It's also a critique of Jews, I think. It's a critique of Jews, particularly British Jews, having this thing of let's not make a fuss, let's not get involved in, but until very recently, let's keep our head down, let's laugh along with anti-Semitism and blah, blah, blah. And also, I think I have noticed that Jews as well, I think, will get so anguished about what to say about Israel that they too can't speak or express themselves properly about anti-Semitism which is why the end of the Israel bit for me says I think Israel meh right it's a statement of I'm just not that fucked about it because 
I am very bothered about anti-Semitism and I think it gets in the way. But I agree with you. Yes, I agree with you sort of out of the confines of the book that I think there is a very complicated overlap in the way that some of the left are triggered by Israel. Personally, the way I, and this isn't in the book, but personally the way I always think about it is what look out for the trope. So if someone is criticising Israel, even criticising its right to exist or whatever, they're not necessarily anti-Semitic. You could be come from like a very, very powerful secular statehood background, for example, intellectually. You believe all states should just have a secular founding, which I sort of believe myself as an atheist, to be honest with you, and that religion and ethnicity should be nowhere near a state, a reason for a nation, okay? Now, as an intellectual position, that's not anti-Semitic. It's just an intellectual position. But the minute you start saying, so I don't believe Israel has a right to exist and it only continues to exist due to a global network of power brokers operating behind the scenes and paying lots of money, then immediately you're in the trope. You're in the trope of ancient anti-Semitic beliefs about, you know, the octopus power of the Jews. And that's, I think, how I separate it. Where have you given yourself away by using those tropes? We started, David, by talking about your own family history. How seriously do you take modern anti-Semitism? How much of an existential threat is it to you and your family? Well, to me and my family, I think it is an existential threat in a weird way. I don't think it's an existential threat in the way that the Jewish Chronicle put that a Corbyn government would be an existential threat to Jews, to the whole community. So that, I think, is wrong. Apart from anything, it causes linguistic issues because... The Nazi government was an existential threat to Jews. It wanted to wipe out the Jewish community in Europe. And that is an existential threat to Jews. I don't believe for a second that had Corbyn got in, there would have been a genocidal attempt to wipe out Jews. You know, And I think some people did, and that is just nonsense. However, what is happening totally is, along with the progressive neglect of anti-Semitism as a major issue, there's been a rise in individual hate crimes against Jews and those have you know not highlighted at all in the same way that other crimes might have been you know the way that 11 Jews were massacred in Pittsburgh in 2018 there was a killing in Jersey in 2019 uh, kosher Delhi the yellow vests for example which were a very kind of like rebellious street movement attacked various Jews on the street and started doing anti-semitic graffiti and whatever as a prominent Jew talking about this you can totally feel targeted. I mean, there's no question. I get loads of anti-Semitic abuse on Twitter, and I don't know how much of that you would consider to be real or whatever. But questionably, individually speaking about this and identifying yourself as a Jew, you can totally feel targeted. In a way, that's the thing. Not me personally, but again, going back to the statistics that I didn't really want to look at in my book, when I actually looked at the hate crimes recorded against Jews just in one particular year. You know, this is really bad. It's really bad, and it is soft-pedalled by the left, or at least there's a sort of sense, and I talk about this towards the end of the book. So, for example, I can't remember the exact dates. This goes back quite a long way, but there was an attack in France some time ago into a synagogue, and the French Prime Minister at the time talked about how there'd been attack on Jews in the synagogue and he then said and innocent French people outside you know nearly got hit as well and that distinction is really key because there's a notion and has always been a notion obviously he probably wasn't in his mind an anti-Semite but he has a notion of there being a separation between ordinary people innocent people French people and Jews and these were 
French Jewish citizens who had committed no crime. But that notion of the not quite innocence of Jews, that pervades the political spectrum, I think, because there is a sense that Jews have enough power and enough wealth and privilege that when they are attacked, whether that be online, through microaggressions or shouted at or killed, that they bear some responsibility for that. And that doesn't apply to most other minorities. David Badil, whose book Jews Don't Count is out now and I'd unreservedly recommend it. I'd welcome your comments on that interview and anything else on the podcast. And if there's a story that you think we should be sharing, feel free to get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. Before we go, just a reminder to please subscribe to the Byline Times if you can. It funds this podcast, our website, and supports Byline TV as well, including the wonderful Matthew Wright. You can get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. See you next time. Bye.